Hey, bowlers, Bowling This Month is back. Bowling This Month is bowling's trusted technical resource that's relied upon by thousands of serious bowlers, pro shop operators, and professional coaches. From independent ball reviews to great instructional articles on all facets of our sport, you'll find it all at BowlingThisMonth.com. For less than the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can have online access to Bowling This Month's premium technical bowling content that will help you improve your game. Bowling This Month is so confident you'll be satisfied, they're offering a 14-day money-back guarantee to all subscribers. Check out BowlingThisMonth.com and sign up today. Now is the time to reinforce your bowling arsenal, and BowlerX.com is the online leader in price, service, and selection. With free insured shipping on every item we carry, including a complete line of pro shop supplies, as well as balls, bags, shoes, accessories, and more. Also, check out the large selection of closeout and discontinued items at a fraction of their original cost. BowlerX.com, your online bowling superstore and proud sponsor of Above180.com. You can hear Above 180 on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and beyond, on demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. BowlerX.com, your online bowling equipment superstore, presents the Above180.com podcast. Tim Berg is ready to hit the lanes, approaching the issues that you, the bowler, want to know. From the latest equipment reviews, coaching, to drilling layouts, and the stars of the PBA. Now, here's your host, Tim Berg. Joining me today on the Above180.com podcast is Gianmarc Manzione. Gianmarc is author of the new book, Pin Action, Small-Time Gangsters, High-Stakes Gambling, and the Teenage Hustler Who Became a Bowling Champion. We all know John Mark is the editor of Bowler's Journal Magazine. He's also worked for the USBC. John Mark, I want to thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Tim. I appreciate it. Well, in your book, you talk about how a young Ernie Schlegel survived off action bowling. He would drive to New Jersey, drive to Philly. Uh, does this stuff still happen in today's game and, and age? Well, uh not that I'm aware of, and I, I think I can pretty confidently say that there is really nothing today that even remotely approximates the kind of action bowling scene that Ernie knew back then. Um, one of the most hilarious quotes I ever encountered while researching the book was when I spoke with a guy named Red Bassett, who was an action bowler himself and sometimes was in the, quote, the back, which was, you know, full of gamblers who were betting on the match out in the, you know, behind the lane. And I asked him, you know, I drove down to Houston one day when I was living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, to talk with him and, and uh, learned a lot about Red. He's an interesting guy, good friends with um, uh, Barry Asher and Johnny Petraglia. And uh, I asked him, you know, Red, everyone always tells me the action bowling scene back in the 50s and 60s really could never be replicated today. And I said, why is that? And he goes, well, that's easy because we don't accept credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that quote. I'll never forget it. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways, as funny as it is, he's he's right. Um, you know, Ricky Hornreich, one of the greatest uh, action bowlers ever, told me that one of the peculiar things about the action bowling scene back then was everybody had money. Everyone had cash on them. You know, there was less loads of cash from uh, one end of the house to the other. Uh, so many people betting, you know, so much on a particular match. And sometimes, literally, and this is in the 1960s, you know, uh, a match could be bowled for between five and $10,000 per game, just just depending on the amount of money being thrown around on it, you know. 
Um, so I don't know that that, that seems really you know, possible today. I mean, the other thing you have to consider is in New York City, um, you know, the, back in the 1960s, Atlantic City really didn't exist yet. The Las Vegas felt so far away as to reside in a neighboring galaxy. You know, I mean, kids looked at Vegas and thought it was on the other side of the world. Um, and you didn't even have uh, legalized off-track betting yet. So because of the prevalence and abundance of bowling centers, especially in the late 50s and early 60s, before 1963, when there was kind of a collapse in uh, uh, bowling centers, because there were so many of them that few of them could really corner enough of a market in their particular neighborhoods to flourish, you know, it was it was the easiest, most accessible, and cheapest way to gamble. And so if you were a guy who loved gambling, and there were plenty of those in New York at that time, uh, the bowling alley became, you know, the, your easiest bet, uh, no pun intended, to, to actually enjoy that. So you had, you know, bowling alleys open 24 hours a day, seven days a week at that time. Uh, you, you couldn't walk more than a few blocks in Ernie Schlegel's neighborhood in upper Manhattan called Inwood without passing by at least several bowling alleys. So the, the accessibility, the affordability of it, um, and other factors such as, you know, Atlantic City, Vegas being far away, and no OTB yet, really made for a very unique circumstance that gave rise to uh, an action bowling scene that, because, you know, so much has changed since then, probably is not possible today. So what challenges did you face when getting folks to talk about a book regarding action bowling just because of some of the the, the undergroundness, so to speak, of this whole thing? Mm-hmm. Well, and, uh, hilariously, uh, I have spoken, and I, I can't believe this, but, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know the types of characters the guys are, uh, you know, dealt with back then. So I, I guess if I did know, then it would make sense to me. But, you know, when I interviewed Michael Limangelo, uh, for the book. And now Lemagello, of course, is a six-time PBA titleist, PBA Hall of Famer, and, and uh, he belongs in the Hall of Fame of gambling, too, if ever one is erected. Uh, told me that, you know, when I was asking about Iggy Russo, one of the preeminent conmen of the action bowling scene, that he wasn't sure if he could talk about Iggy because he wasn't sure if everyone involved was dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and other guys have said that to me, too. And, and not jokingly. I mean, some of them are quite serious. They They really... And in fact, in um, some of the interviews I did, guys would would leave out names and tell me they had to leave out names, um, not just to protect them, but to protect themselves. <laughs> and and think about it. I mean, these guys are talking about things that happened 40, 50, 60 years ago, and they still live in some degree of fear of, of those they uh, <clears throat> either engage with themselves or, or those whose actions they witnessed, you know, back in the day. So that was part of the difficulty. The other difficulty was... Um, really a couple of things. Firstly, memory fades over 50 or 60 years, you know, and it also gets colored by myth. And so I, I had to make sure I was finding, uh, uh, you know, some collaboration between uh, or corroboration rather between sources. So, you know, if one guy told me one thing and then another guy told me the same story, but with all these different names and different circumstances, then I would know I probably had a problem on my hands. But more often than not, believe it or not, uh, a lot of the stories, well, in fact, every story I chose to go with in the book really came with details that were identical from one source to the next. And as I've said, you know, uh, unless all of these guys who now live all over the country are somehow convening annually in a, in a let's, let's compare notes about action bowling mythology conference, it doesn't seem possible to me that they would all be making up precisely the same details. I mean, down to the day, down to the names, down to the lanes on which people bowled, 
uh, the times of day it happened, the houses in which these circumstances took place. Everything was the same. So uh, I know I could confidently go go ahead with um, with those stories. So, you know, guys being afraid of mentioning names, guys forgetting things or coloring their memories with, uh, you know, some uh, embellishment over the years, and just finding, you know, guys who really, like Limagella, for instance, who had just dropped off the face of the bowling world for so long, uh, some of whom, you know, like Kenny Barber, for instance, I mean, you know, he was such a regional legend that, um, you know, he hadn't really been heard from in, in bowling, especially on any kind of national level uh, in, gosh, in 50 years. I mean, Bowler's Journal in 1963 did produce a cover story about Kenny Barber uh, in an April 1963 issue. But other than that, you know, Kenny was very, very obscure by the time I got a hold of him. And so it was just such a treasure for me to, to be able to find these guys. It was a very exciting journey for me. Joining us for a quick update on what's happening over at Bowling This Month is Bowling This Month owner, Bill Semsrat. Hi, Tim. So I've got three new Bowling This Month articles I'd like to quickly highlight this week. So first up, we've got an article from Rob Motner with a summary of some of the different ways that the ball manufacturers classify their products on their website. So you know, this is a, a really useful article for people who are trying to, to, to get a better grasp of what kind of balls are available and how they how those balls are related and, and grouped by the various manufacturers. Next up, I've got an article from a new BTM contributor named John York. John's a collegiate coach and a USBC Silver Certified coach, and his first article is on how to make sure your mental game is keeping up with your physical game as you advance and, and progress as a bowler. And finally, we've got part two of Tyrell Rose's article series on performance analysis for bowlers where he explains the differences between bowlers who underachieve and bowlers who underperform. Uh, and then he, he discusses some specific improvement approaches for these two types of bowlers. Uh, so for these articles and many more on a, on a wide variety of bowling topics, please check out bowlingthismonth.com. Back to you, Tim. We talked a little bit about action bowling being dead these days, but um, I guess because you do still hear somewhat about folks and their buddies getting together and maybe putting down a 20 or, or a denomination and saying, high man wins. Um, but one of the theories that I kind of have as to why it's kind of going away is, uh, people just, it's, it's social media. Like you're not going to get, be able to get hustled again. And you know what I mean? Like back mm -hmm. in the day mm -hmm. yeah. there, there wasn't social media. So, I mean, the, you, yeah. you, you can't let people do that and doing it with your friends is just kind of a friendly way. And there's a competitive juices. It's no different than playing softball or football or something against them on a rec league, but to actually go to a different city, I, I almost guarantee I couldn't do that and find people that would want to bowl against me, not because they couldn't beat me, but because it just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, and you look at the preeminent hustler of all time, really, which would have to be, I guess, Count Gengler. You know, Count Gengler developed, and, and Thomas Madrecki has done some amazing work on the on the life history of, of Count Gengler. If you haven't spoken with Thomas about that, you should. He's a really bright kid and has done some incredible research on Count Gengler. But, I mean, Count Gengler's a guy that, that was developing at that time, and this was a long time ago, a national reputation as, as a great hustling con man, you know, and he, uh, the guy who took only one step at his approach and dressed like, uh, like his suits were designed by a tailor on site, you know? Um, but yeah, imagine that. Imagine a count gangler going, you know, from coast to coast, uh, making those, you know, developing that kind of a reputation and getting away with that today. I don't think it would be possible because you're right. I mean, people would probably more quickly get wind of what he was doing and what he was about uh, today than they than they certainly were able to do back in his day. So I do think there's a, a great degree of truth to that. 
So when, when you were doing all your research and you talked to a lot of these folks, for these hustlers, was there an end game? Like, were they were they trying to get, I know, Ernie, you know, PBA title champion and so on. Was there a goal to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hustle these folks here locally or, or regionally, and so my goal is I'm going to go out on the tour and I'm going to actually win some real money? Or is it just kind of, you know what, this is what I'm, I'm doing for a living and, until something else comes along? Well, uh, you know, the end game, I guess, was twofold. Firstly, uh, it was to make money. I mean, these guys wanted to make, you know, uh, as much money as they could. I mean, imagine the thrill of being, for instance, an 18-year-old kid whose parents bring home, as Johnny Petragli's parents did, uh, about $54 a week, and being able to bowl a match for $1,000 a game. It, 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 that's mind-boggling money for, for, in that situation, Johnny Petragli, a 14-year-old kid bowling an action match at Fort Wayne Lanes, for a thousand bucks a game when he <laughs> readily admitted at the time and to this day had never seen a $100 bill in his life and didn't even know how to break one, you know? <laughs> so imagine the thrill there. So that was, that was part of the, of the objective. Um, and also Mike Lemangelo, for instance, and others have told me that it, it, it also wasn't so much about making money in the case of some of the greatest, you know, gamblers like Lemangelo and Hornrick as it was, about the adrenaline you experience when you were bowling for so much money. And I, I, I think Lemagello was one guy who told me that really if he had an objective, it was to bowl until he was broke <laughs> because it was just so much fun to bet, you know. Now, the tour you mentioned was not for all of these action bowlers. I mean, Richie Hornwright tried the tour. I think he tried 13 stops. Um, but there was too much downtime. It, it wasn't head-to-head with all the money on the line and people betting in the back. It was this very structured, uh, much more rigid uh, you know, t- tour structure than than Hornreich had the patience for. So when he was going on tour, a sponsor gave him enough money to bowl the first 13 tour stops. I forget what year it was. And uh, unfortunately for the sponsor, the first tour stop at that time was in Las Vegas. So Richie Hornreich cashed in all 13 checks on the spot, blew it off <laughs> gambling, <laughs> and uh, and the rest of history. And he never really made much of himself on tour, which is a shame because. This is not just me saying that Richie was one of the greatest ever. Ask Barry Asher, a PBA Hall of Famer. Ask Johnny Petraglia. Hell, ask uh, Ernie Schlegel. And they will all tell you that, you know, he was on par with a Dick Weber, a Carmen Salvino. He did some incredible things when he was just 13 years old, uh, but never really made it on tour because for Richie, he was more interested in betting on the ponies and you know, betting on which range up would fall down the window the fastest at Bay Ridge Lanes, which is a true story, he was in, in winning a PBA Tour title. Well, you hit on something there that I want to want to bring up, too, and that's having a backer. Because a lot of guys in, in, back in that time, because the tour was very different than it is these days, uh, you know, just the longevity and the, and the fear cost and the financial burdens to it, had backers back then and investors and such. That seems to, though, have gone away. Now, I think partly it's because of the fact of the way the PBA is structured and the costs of some of the Mm -hmm. things now. But also, I just think sometimes just the mentality of our youth is different than it was back then where – I don't want to say it was almost like a selfishness nowadays of the of the kids. Not to you know date myself, but back then you were just happy to have someone who said, "Wow, this person believes in me, and they're going to put up money to bowl. And if I have to give them a percentage, that's fine." Where now it seems like the person's like, "Wait a minute, the kid, you know, the eighteen or twenty year old's like, wait a minute, that's not fair. I want to, you know, I'm doing all the work. I'm doing all and and Mm. you know, what are your thoughts on that as far as?" You know, because there, there has to even be, even with the World Series of Bowling just taking place, there has to be some really good bowlers who probably could not make it out there just due to financial obligations and either didn't have anyone to back them or didn't ask them. So what are your thoughts on some of that sort of thing? 
Well, speaking of the World Series of Bowling, within that context, I, I, I liked the uh, JT, um, what was the JT Action Jackson match against Chris Barnes because uh, Action Jackson, I believe, was backed by uh, Kevin Hart, the comedian, because Jackson himself is a comedian. Um, and I think Chris Barnes put up his own money. PBA put up another $1,000. So ultimately, the match was, was for a total of eleven grand. But I really loved that. Uh, I have to grin at it at, as the guy who wrote a book like Pin Action because you know that does harken back to the old days when you had a backer hearing that some bowler he believes in was willing to put up everything he had on a match against one of the greatest ever in Chris Barnes. That was the kind of thing that got you know the word of mouth circulating uh, in Ernie's words faster than the internet in the 1960s. Um, so yeah, I, I liked I liked the harkening back to the days of the backers. Um, I don't know why you don't see much of the of that kind of thing today. I do know that back in the day, having a backer uh, did come with a degree of reputation. You know, like for instance, one of the greatest and and most obscure action bowlers back in the day was Dewey Blair, who had a backer named Dauber, and Dauber would 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 cart him around everywhere from house to house because he knew Dewey was great and Dewey was great, um, and and almost always made money on his on his kid. Uh, one of the greatest, you know, stories involving a backer that I ever heard researching for this book was when Larry Lichtenstein, another PBA Hall of Famer who won his lone PBA title at the 1971 um, Ebonite Open in Saratoga Lanes, and then went on to become the PBA Services Director. Prior to that, he was an action bowler himself in the in the 60s, primarily out of Connecticut, but one night found himself bowling at Central Lanes in Yonkers, one of the most famous action houses of all time, and unfortunately it burned down just a couple years later, never to be reconstructed. He runs into Kenny Barber, and Kenny by that time was was in that in that region universally known as one of the greatest action bowlers ever, and he was. Um, but this one night, you know, Larry looked hot, and a backer, I think it might have been Maxi, uh, a backer known at at Central Lanes, saw that Larry from the left side of the lane, being a lefty, really was locked in, and, and you know you. If a lefty gets locked in, usually a righty is probably not going to have much of a shot. I mean, that's, I think, as true today as it was 50 years ago. And uh, so the backer puts up the money for Larry to bowl Kenny. Now, when you were going to bowl a guy known to be great in a house where he is known to perform brilliantly in the past, as Kenny had at Central, a lot of money could be bet on that match and a lot of money could be won. And the backer had a lot to do with it because the backer was the one who continued to put up the money, doubling up in bets from one game to the next. Well, that's what happened, and uh, yeah, Larry did all the bowling, but you know he couldn't have done any of it without the backer, like you mentioned, and ends up cleaning out Kenny Barber to the tune of many thousands of dollars. And as Larry told the story to me from the pro shop he had when I was researching this book up out at uh, Cape Coral, Florida, that was the night he knew he had found the thing he would do for the rest of his life, and it was largely in thanks to that backer who saw his potential and put his money where his mouth was. Again, the name of the book, Pin Action, Small-Time Gangsters, High-Stakes Gambling, and the Teenage Hustler Who Became a Bowling Champion. John Mark Manzione joining me on the show. I want to thank you for the book and all the best of luck with the book. It's a very good read. i got to tell you, folks, I'm, I'm about halfway done, i got to be honest, because it, it just draws you in, and it's very good, though, very uh, well put together, very well researched. and I, it, It's truly a bowling book, but honestly, I think it transcends bowling into just a time of, of people from you know people from that area of New York and Brooklyn, like where you grew up, are going to remember some of these uh, landmarks and these bowling centers and these delis and just uh, going to be able to really do some reminiscing and just a lot of great stuff in there. So, John Mark, best of luck with the book, and I want to uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate this.